we know what we hear about, I think, really speaks to this um, push-pull um, that many couples experience around their careers and prioritizing um, how to find balance um, in family and career. Um, it's not just A-listers, right? A-listers who are married to other A-listers who are trying to figure out how to right. juggle. Unless um, you want to call me an A-lister. We are all A-listers in our own right, right? So that's <laughs> Wow. That's true. She's um, on. She's feeling it. She's feeling that. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be so attached to them. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sesson will bring us a conversation about Giselle Buchanan and Tom Brady. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, that's not right. Just have to get I think it's... Good thing Sesson's doing pop and culture. Oh, Bunchen? What is it? Bunchen? Bunchen? I'm not going to add an accent. I'm pretty sure she's just Giselle. It's fine. And the struggle to balance careers and family. It is very challenging indeed. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, The Impact of Caregiver Depression on Child Asthma Outcomes, Pathways and Mechanisms. Excited to hear how pathways and mechanisms are different. And then in Good or Bad Advice, we're going to discuss a blog post from Worthing Court. I know, right? Very popular blog on how to avoid fights while decorating your home. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at Attached Podcast. And always for bonus content and to support this little tiny podcast, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached and become a patron. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever it may be, please rate and review it. And of course, uh, gently touch that subscribe button. But before we get to all of this amazing, hot content, what's up? How's it going? What's, what's new in your life? What's old? What's old that's new again? Ah, well, I've been getting rid of what's old to make room for what's new. Oh. So, yeah. Emotionally like or physically? Wow. Uh, maybe both. I am in the middle of like a mid-fall deep clean, mm. which I feel like something I turn to when I'm like stressed, but also I just like to do every once in a while, like go through all the closets and throw stuff out. And I love it. Uh, I tackled the cupboard this weekend, which I do every so often, like probably a few times a year. And my mom does too when she visits. I feel like she oh. will go through the cupboard and like get rid of anything that doesn't need to be in there anymore. And uh, so there's no way that I should have found food yeah. products from 2017, what? 2018. I mean, I threw out, it's got to be two thirds of my cupboard. Really? I know. There were so many foods in there that died long before COVID ever happened. Wow. Their existence had no intersection with COVID, but they were still in my cupboard. So I, uh, yeah, it's very interesting because in my head, it's, I regularly keep it clean, but apparently good not. Good thing that I know. Sorry for anyone who's been eating at my home lately. <laughs> uh, when you said cupboard, I thought you meant like. Oh, like a pantry. Yeah. I thought you meant like where you store the Tupperware. Um, oh, sure. Maybe is cupboard not the right I'm word? I'm sure it is the right word. I just call it pantry. Mm, interesting. What do yeah, you I call it, pantries. I call it cupboard pantry. Probably cupboard. Okay. I don't have, I, I call them drawers or drawers. I drawers. Draw I know drawers. it was. <laughs> that had a cabinets. draw. I call them cabinets. cabinets. That's <laughs> oh, cabinets. Yeah. Also cabinets. fancy. Yes. I don't have like a walk-in pantry. Uh, uh, you know. uh, you cannot walk into my pantry I'm in California. Either. So it's you small. know those luxuries. Well, yeah. The children can play hide and go seek. They can hide, but they have to like <clears throat> hold their breath to fit in there. It's not a walk-in pantry. So maybe that's why I call it a cupboard because it's just a set of shelves and no lights. Whoever built this house 10 years ago put no lights in it. 
So, so dark. Oh, that's why. That's, that's why the food's old. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah, to blame. Super dark. No, glad I, we talked this through. No one ever blamed you for that, Sarah. Thank um, you. We have a small cupboard upstairs, and then our entire basement. Not our entire basement, but good oh. portions of our basement are for food storage. And mm, then mm, um, mm. this is not because of me. It's basement. because of my husband. He loves to store food. And then he sent me this video on Instagram. This is an underground fridge that runs without electricity. It's called a oh. ground fridge. And it's a naturally or a cave. Like a cave for wine. It can hold What's he storing the down there? Fruits, <gasps> I know something we don't know that's coming. So know, basically, right? <laughs> it's an underground storage fridge. <laughs> and so he sent it to me on Instagram. Ooh. And I said, are we getting that? He said, yeah, I think probably we should. Oh, it's like a doomsday prepper. So I Is have that- a little red bag with like a handful of like emergency things ready to go in our vehicle. That's the extent of our <laughs> preparation for like. Well, I mean, to be fair, I do a lot of food preservation, right? He was like, it'd be great. We could put all of our like all, anything like our apple cider or our hot sauce, like because we make huge batches of things. Cider, like, we could put the cold cider. <laughs> All your ciders. No, we're just going to have to remember to come find you. You know how like in these know, right? good oh, yeah. people go traveling looking yeah. for something. Yeah. We're gonna good luck hauling across the whole entire country. <laughs> you might be the only one with that kind of food storage situation. I mean, it's going to yeah. be worth it. <laughs> I got hot you cider. Might have everybody who listens to this podcast show up here. <laughs> Knoxville bounce. Oh my gosh, you guys. So anyway, we're, you know, behind our house is a big hill. So he's like, I think we can just dig it right into the hill. And I'm like, all right, well, that's, all right. go ahead and do it. But anyway, uh, good for your cupboard. I'm happy for you. I wish we had smaller amounts of food in our house. Uh, but anyway, uh, Sasson, I almost called you Nessen. That's <laughs> right. so weird. Anyway, sorry. Uh, what's going on in your life? New, old, what's old is new? Mm, more just like surviving colds and dodging you know, little viruses here and there. That's what we're mm, using sorry, your code work high skills. I mean, I am desperately trying not to be mm, sick because sick. I, one, I have a lot to do. I can't afford it, but I also just want my son to go to school every day that he can. So, um, you know, between getting our boosters and the flu shot on the same day, the day before Halloween, not a smart idea, right? Oh. Cause we're all like tired out of it the next day and he's like all of the symptoms that sometimes come up after you take a shot you know he exhibited and so there was that and then we actually got something which we're recovering from and my husband was out of town so it's you know sick mom trying to take care of sick child which is always a really um messy kind of weekend <laughs> situation where I'm I like know, Can I, I want to visualize that and- type of mess yeah, it it was it's been more comical than you know Good. hard in some ways just because I am the kind of person who wants to be taken care of when I'm sick. I don't like to pretend like I'm not or think I'm you know okay when I'm sick. I'm like I'm sick. Everybody's gonna know. It. Oh, Everybody's oh. gonna want to be helpful but find me quickly annoying like after like a good couple of requests like it's just like how many times did you call your husband during that weekend whilst sick I actually he he's the kind who will feel really guilty and worry oh. so I I kept it at a like we're fine little slight okay, good fever. for you okay didn't okay. really want to put in the but when he came back it was like I made up I was like <laughs> now that you're here you should know how bad it was I'm swooning now. I I swear so it's psychological because all my symptoms seem to have gotten worse in a period of like two hours from him arriving. And he's like, wow, you were this bad. I go, not really. That's how you got here. I held it all in just for you. I think I did. Honestly, I kept saying to him, I was like, I don't know why I feel so much worse now that you're here. Like, it felt really weird. You brought it um, out of me. But now I'm medicated, so we'll see how long it takes. Things are good. This weekend, my husband and I, like for the first time since COVID, we went out on uh, a parent night out with uh, two of our newer friends. They're the parents of one of my middle child's school friends. Um, and we've only hung out with them like two or three times. 
Um, and so we we're going to have them over to our house for dinner. And they're like, hey, our church has like this parent night out where they take care of the kids from like five to nine. Do you guys just want to go to dinner? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't. My husband, I don't think we've been out with just another couple without kids. Definitely pre-pandemic and maybe even a little bit before that. It's been a while. So we were like really excited about it, but also a little bit nervous. And so uh, we prepped ahead of time, like the Friday before during work, we were like, okay, let's brainstorm some topic ideas of what we need to be able to talk wow. about. And like that. No, I know. Wait, I know. you prepped for your dinner, for your outing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you guys not? Is that not a she normal? She just adjusted her therapist glasses. Did you see that? She just. Whoop, okay, well, I just like to in. have a list of topics that will be good conversation starters in case there's a lull in conversation. I'm about That's to adjust my therapist glasses. That is such a normal thing. I wouldn't say normal, but is it appropriate? Sure. Sure. Normal. Does it work for you? That's good. Therapist phrases spit at me. Oh no. Anyway, it was a lovely dinner. Just so you guys know, the preparation was not needed. The conversation flowed wonderfully. Um, and it was a lot you of You still fun. got it. I mean, <laughs> COVID didn't take away this social butterfly skills. <laughs> I didn't do that move whilst on the parent outing. You. So you guys know. You. But it was a lot of fun. It was enjoyable. We went to this uh, Mediterranean restaurant mm. who they didn't even serve alcohol at this restaurant. So I had all my skills intact whilst completely sober. Oh, no, Sarah. What does that face mean? No, that's good. I'm listening. Go on. I thought it was a really good, fun time. And then afterwards, uh, the next day, debriefed with my husband, said, did I do anything terribly awkward? Did you do anything terribly awkward? We both agree that I don't think either of us did anything terribly awkward that we should be like embarrassed or worried from. So I think in the moment it was enjoyable. And afterwards, when thinking about it and, you know, like we didn't do anything terribly awkward. So I think we nailed it, you guys. You fall on like the opposite end of reactive as a couple. Like you just like, if there is like this other side, like far other side, that's who you oh. <laughs> That's There's like, it'll, sounds, like, like, well. sounds yeah. like a good gonna, thing to me. What? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's such intention. Yeah. <laughs> They've got fridge in the hill and lull topics prepared. They're never showing up anywhere. Without all kinds of backup. <laughs> yeah. Again, I don't see anything bad that you guys just said. It all seems like a wonderful life. Thank you very much. For sure. Oh, man. That's special. I love it. <laughs> I can't wait to do it again. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasson, what do you have for us about Giselle and Tom Brady? Yes. So, um, unfortunately, it's never, I mean, I think... Um, fun to talk about people in difficult, you know, circumstances. But um, after 13 years of marriage, uh, the supermodel Giselle and her um, now, I guess, ex-husband, um, uh, NFL um, superstar, some refer to him as the GOAT, um, uh, Tom Brady, announced they were divorcing recently. And their divorce actually happened fairly quickly. I think they might actually be divorced already. Oh, wow. And some say that the separation and then um, to follow divorce was really rooted in the fact that um, Tom was prioritizing his career for many years now um, over his um, family, right? His family time and um, also stemming from his sort of unwillingness maybe to be supportive of Giselle and her career 
as a supermodel and some of the different businesses I know that she has. Um, so of course we don't know all the details, so we will not assume neither here or there about like all the in-between things that were happening that may have resulted in the divorce. But I think um, we know what we hear about, I think really speaks to this um, push-pull um, that many couples experience around their careers and prioritizing um, how to find balance um, in family and career. Um, it's not just A-listers, right? A-listers who are married to other A-listers who are trying to figure out how to right. juggle. Unless um, you want to call me an A-lister. We are all A-listers in our own right, right? So that's <laughs> Wow. That's true. <laughs> She's on. Um, she's feeling it. She's feeling <laughs> riding the high of her date, um, <laughs> her day night with her hubby. I love it. It's not hard to imagine for many of us, right? Like I think all of us here on um, the podcast could also agree that, you know, we work full time. We're parents trying to juggle the love we feel and the care we have for our families with our passion and interest in our careers and growing them. Um, and that can be really difficult. And for some, it could be you know, take them all the way to the point where they decide they can no longer be together and that they put in the time and effort to try to address the issues around that and are not able to. Um, so obviously with this couple, you know, the end result was that they felt like they could no longer sort of stand for sort of the imbalance that existed, one feeling really unsupported and feeling they were at their breaking point. And I think, you know, for some of us, you know, we have some conversations, difficult conversations and see improvements. But for others, I mean, there's these conversations can happen for years, right? Where you're feeling like you're constantly asking for there to be better balance between the two and for more support when one's career doesn't feel like it's being noticed or valued or prioritized. Um, and it's hard. It's really, really difficult, especially in this day and age, I think, Um to manage career goals and navigate, you know, household responsibilities. We've talked about it on the show, right? Sometimes how those responsibilities are inequitable and how sometimes it leans on women to really step up into those roles and the resentment, the contempt, sometimes that leads to just feeling exhausted and burned out by everything in our lives, right? When we're feeling like there's an imbalance and we don't feel that support. So navigating the distribution of responsibilities can be especially difficult, right? When um, there's one partner who's really interested in their career um, and who um, some might describe her as like hyper work focused or some use the word like workaholics. Um, and I just wanted to sort of bring this to the conversation, right? You know, of course, we're not talking about trying to be the greatest NFL player of all time. We're talking about, you know, um, the average person um, trying to find fulfillment and thrive in their job, sometimes taking that to the point where it causes harm to the other partner and it feels harmful to the family um, and what that does, right? And how do we address that? How do we as um, therapists notice that coming up in the work that we do, but what is also, you know, what are the implications? So I don't know what should be done here. Like when you are in a relationship where you feel like you've asked your partner to really f identify how to manage that balance better, right? It's never going to be 50-50, nor would some couples want that. They want the clear priority to be the family. Um, and then others want one partner to really step up and be focused on the household while they take care of the career and, and not always seeing eye to eye on how that looks. So what do you all think? Um, I think it all hits very close to us. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I at the same time, I, I, maybe we have some ideas about this from our understanding of the research and our own clinical work. I think one of the things you're talking a little bit about is uh, like gender roles in the family. And, and we've talked about it probably here before, but in the literature, uh, especially relationship education type of research, they really advise you to talk about those values and those expectations you have before you get married. So making sure that you're on the same page of what each of you expects um, before you get married to make sure you're not totally at opposite ends of the spectrum. Like you said, there's always some wiggle room and change is inherently going to happen in the relationship, but making sure and checking in um, before you decide to go this 
relationship together to make sure you have the same vision and expectations of what your roles or responsibility, what that's going to look like in uh, your marriage, I think is one really important thing to consider. Yeah, it's hard to sort of think about this topic and not think about how gender is often a part of this dynamic in terms of the work family spillover and then who carries the majority of the responsibility for the childcare work on top of the paid employment work outside of the home uh, and how quickly that resentment you're talking about, Sesson, can build in the face of doing multiple jobs while another person may not be necessarily picking up that shared workload. You know, I think one of the things that really comes up for me when I'm thinking about this is just how over time things look really different in one's career, right? And how two people who may come together without any children find a lot of excitement in the fact that they have a partner who's ambitious and who works hard and they start to grow their careers. But once they have children, right, those priorities in the careers require conversations in terms of what needs to change? Who's going to be the one to change it? How long is the change going to exist before the other person finds their way back into the career in a way that feels meaningful to them? The challenge, I think, is people get really stuck in what they initially agreed to sometimes and not really flexible around how over time these conversations need to just keep happening and adjustments and need to continue to be made. Without that flexibility, I think it's really easy for people to get really caught in conflict around it, right? Like we agreed when we started, right? Our relationship that when we had kids, I would step back. But now it's been six years and you're still not, you know, there's no room for me to get back into my career. Or that's just one example. But I think the lack of flexibility or the lack of check-ins within the relationship over time is a real challenge. And I think whatever agreements you came to in the beginning, you have to recognize that it's fair, right, for someone to really want to do something maybe different um, and no longer maybe carry that responsibility in the household or maybe they don't want to be in the career in the same way and they do want to step into the household more, whatever it might be, but that without that flexibility, inevitably there's conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is really hard in our culture and you know, in this day and age where a lot of expectation is put on us in the workforce and the hours that we work seem to not really fit into this perfect like eight to five or whatever it is kind of mold right and i think even when we really want to step back from work we struggle right with the pressure that that creates the sense of maybe feeling like you know questioning whether or not like you can do that without repercussions at your job. You know, like there's a lot of factors. It's more nuanced and, you know, my partner wants me to step back and therefore I will, right? You have, there's a lot of considerations right. and especially if you work in a workforce or a work environment that isn't very family friendly, right? You have to sometimes advocate for your needs and your family's needs in ways that the system doesn't really set you up to feel like you have that support and can do that safely. So I think it's hard and I think the culture around us makes it a bit harder for people. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it is trying to uh, change your pattern of work so that it can be a little bit more balanced within the family or however your family wants can be really challenging. I think uh, Woods just sent me a tweet. uh, It was research, I believe, talking about Mm -hmm. how like individuals and this is i think mostly in corporate america individuals who talk about their work as just you know they're working but they're not terribly passionate mm-hmm. about it um even if their performance is the same as people who talk as if you know their work is their life and they're very passionate about it actually are less likely to get a raise and get promotion um because they are just verbalizing the fact that you know i'm working but it's not my super passion so you know not being um super passionate about your job or verbally, you know, being so excited and saying that it's your life, you can actually, there are consequences out there. So it's a very, very uh, hard balance to um, find um, within yourself and also then the added layer of your family too. 
Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, it's a conversation that I feel like I have um, more and more about that work family balance, but it's unfortunate when it ultimately results in a divorce, right? So, yeah. Next up, an academic deep dive into a new research on treating children's asthma. Asthma, you say, on a podcast about relationships? Absolutely. Uh, Strong emotions and stress are well-known asthma triggers. Stress causes our breathing to change even if we don't have asthma. But for people with asthma, stress-related muscle tightening and increased breath rate can trigger asthma symptoms and even asthma attacks. Prior research has even found the links between children's symptoms of depression and anxiety and poor asthma control. But it isn't just stress experienced by a child with asthma that matters. Research has also found that caregivers of kids with asthma are more likely to have depression and anxiety than caregivers of healthy kids. Caregiver depression has been associated with increased unplanned visits to child asthma clinics, and caregiver anxiety has been linked to asthma-related hospitalizations. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into new research just out in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in practice. Uh, That is the first to look at whether treating parents' depression, so specifically treating the parents' depression, not child, might actually result in improving kids' asthma control. The research team, led by Dr. Sherwood Brown at University of Texas Southwestern and Drs. Bruce Miller and Betsy Wood, we know her, um, at the University of Buffalo points out that most earlier research of caregiver depression and child asthma were cross-sectional, meaning it's impossible for us to know whether change in one is associated with change in the other because it's cross-sectional. All of the data points are at the same point in time. However, if in fact caregiver depression is associated with worse asthma outcomes for kids, what an important opportunity to support the family, the entire family, in getting healthier mentally and physically. So Sarah, help us all breathe a little bit easier, breathe a sigh of relief, and give us the deets on this really cool um, new study out. Yeah, so as you just described, Patricia, these researchers tested whether improvement in caregiver depression would predict subsequent improvement in child asthma over time, and if so, what the link between those two things might be, whether that's the child's experience of depression themselves or whether that might be linked by medication adherence, meaning uh, as caregivers' depression improves, are children more able to adhere to the medications that they need to take to control their asthma, and that's what predicts asthma control. So their sample included 205 families. So these were the adult caregivers were actually 98% female. So they were almost exclusively moms, uh, primarily responsible for the child's asthma management. So they were able to be anywhere from 18 to 70 years old. They were about on average like 39 years old, could speak English or Spanish, but they had to have major depressive disorder to be enrolled in the study. Kids could be anywhere from 7 to 17 years old and had to have a diagnosis of persistent asthma, meaning they're either using daily controller medications or their symptoms are really persistent in a very defined way without those medications that are daily, meaning they're needing to use like a lot of rescue inhalers and having symptoms throughout the week, day and night. So uh, what's interesting about the sample that um, they actually found that the kids when enrolled a fourth of them actually had depression scores on the measure that they were using to assess child depression that was suggestive of possible depression diagnosis. So I know a substantial proportion of those children were already struggling at potentially a clinical level. That decreased to 7% at the final study visit for these kids. So um, uh, a really interesting sort of baseline marker. And then also you can sort of see where we're headed here. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a longitudinal project. So these caregivers, again, mostly moms, were offered an algorithm-based depression pharmacotherapy treatment, meaning that they were offered the opportunity to be treated for their depression using different medications that as they try these medications, they can increase 
in a specific medication or they can also switch medications as indicated to work towards achieving depression remission. So it's a pretty defined process that guides physicians in how to prescribe and treat depression from a pharmacotherapy standpoint. Um, and those caregivers and kids were observed every four weeks for 52 weeks wow. for each family. Now, because this is a study not of the efficacy of that depression treatment, but of how the possible changes in that depression impact asthma control, they were also allowed to receive outside care, so outside mental health support, uh, and they were also allowed to decline this pharmacotherapy, this um, antidepressant treatment, if they wanted. They were allowed to sort of engage in treatment of their depression, the caregivers, however they wanted to. So what they were looking at was the proportion of time or the number of study visits across those 52 weeks, across the year, that a caregiver was in remission from depression. So the, again, they had 205 mostly moms. 42% of these moms did not remit at any point during the study, meaning at every single visit that they were part of the study across the year, they continued to have clinical levels of major depression. Uh, but of those that did remit, meaning their symptoms dropped below that clinical threshold during one or more study visits, the average amount of time for that portion of the sample to spend in remission was 45% of the time across the year. So there's a lot of variation in how these caregivers uh, were achieving relief from their depression, which I think is important. Because what they found was that the proportion of time that a caregiver was in remission from that depression predicted an improvement in the child's asthma control over time. Wow. And they measured that two different ways, both in self-report in terms of their symptoms they were experiencing, but also in uh, spirometry. So also in this breathing measure, this objective measure of their ability to breathe for a certain specific small amount of time uh, and measuring their breath output. So subjective reports and also that objective um, uh, quantitative report of their breathing ability. And what they found connected it was not medication adherence. This wasn't, in this study, an instance where that ability to take medications as prescribed was what predicted asthma control. It was actually a decrease in the child's depression. So as mom's depression decreased, wow. kids' depression decreased, and their asthma control improved, which is so very incredible. So uh, such an opportunity to sort of think about how we treat kids and we treat families how we support families right right so this was again i mean a limitation i think is that this is mostly moms now the authors argue and i would agree that's probably representative of who brings kids to asthma clinic visits um who brings kids to their doctor's visits is often moms but this caregiver sample does not have any large proportion of dads it's mostly moderate to severe asthma it's clinical depression so there are some factors about the sample that make it unique to this study um, but i think it really reflects how powerfully parents and their well-being impacts kids and we always need to be thinking about supporting whole families and how all of these relationships are tied in together and affecting both mental and physical health, right? And I think what's really important to think about in terms of what we can take away from this research is this is not parent blaming. Mm. Uh, the really, I think the important frame is that parents experiencing depression deserve support. And if we intervene with people experiencing depression who have children, you have the ability to not only benefit the parents' health, but also that trickles out yes. and impacts and benefits their children's health, their mental health and their physical health, which is remarkable, right? It's really a very, very cool study. And I've been um, waiting for these outcomes to be published for a while, <laughs> having learned about this trial several years ago. And I'm so excited to see that they found what I personally was hoping for. Uh, it's very exciting. So incredible. And I love the message also you're saying about the power of uh, treating the entire family and how, you know, uh, treating one person's depression and mental health just trickles out because uh, we do live in systems of humans, systems of families, and we're all linked together. So, uh, you know, knowing the power of that just kind of sends chills through me. So that's amazing. Yeah. 
I mean, a next really interesting step, I think, would be to sort of look at how environmental contextual factors are mm. affecting parents, right, and affecting kids in these families. Because wow. yeah. it's quite possible that the impact of the lived environment that these families are embedded in could impact not only mood and their ability to take care of their health, but also impact things like air quality, which is going to affect asthma sort of specific to this. But this is a really very exciting research that really is one powerful way to prove how important our relationships to our family are. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's always, you know, easy to say, I think, you know, it's important for us as parents to take care of our mental wellness, right? And sort of not always thinking about like the actual health implications on other people around that, right? When it comes down to our children just to know that by taking care of our own mental wellness, we're actually affecting, you know, these health outcomes for our kids. Like that's pretty profound, I think, um, way of really framing it. Um, and this is obviously one example, the study of how that looks, right? And I think for many parents, it's a motivator, I think, to do something in terms of addressing. I think depression is one of those things, even when we feel like we're dealing with it, we often sort of deny our symptoms or play it down or just we don't... Um, work actively to get it treated right and so it's not sometimes till we think about what it means for other people and, and here's a study that really says like think about your children and this is how it could have really helped them and i think for many parents that is a better motivator than saying think about your own wellness right i think we will prioritize our family and our children's wellness over our own and i think this is a study that says like those things come hand in hand yeah. um that's really important Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blog, and those numerous top 10 lists. But this is going to be shocking for you guys. So, like, hold on to your seats real quick. A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. I know, right? This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. Or a little bit of both. Sometimes we say, oh, this is good and this is bad, but it's fine. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, all of those things at attached podcast. While you're at it, please kindly rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And then, as always, share it with your loved ones. They love podcast recommends. I just know it. I feel it in my bones. Also, we always have a bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. If you want that bonus, sweet, sweet bonus content, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash attached. So, tis the season. We're kind of in the middle of uh, decorate your home uh, Christmas vacation style if you want to. Um, so I was wanting to see if there is any advice out there about how to decorate your house together as a family and avoid any conflict that some people have. If you remember Christmas vacation, there was intense conversation about how many lights to have on your tree or on the house. Um, and there were... <laughs> What's his name? Chuck Griswold? No, what's his name? Uh, Chevy Chase? Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Clark Clark Griswold. And by the end of the show, Clark uh, definitely had a full-on meltdown, (laughs) Um, (laughs) culminating with, uh, you know, cuss words and stuff. So anyway, I couldn't find anything specifically on decorating your house for uh, winter holidays um, and how to avoid disagreement. But I did find how to compromise over decorating your house when you can't agree on worthingcourt.com. So they have a couple of tips and I am just curious what you guys think about these tips about how to avoid conflict when decorating your house. Tip one. Wait, first off, are you guys ready? So this is advice specifically related in, to this context Decor- of to decor- decoration. Okay. Decorating right. your house. Just I'm not going to take it beyond that. Okay. Got it. <laughs> I was going to say, unless it is so profound that you decide <laughs> apply liberally. It's true. And we know a lot of families out there 
are having intense conversations about decorating their house for Christmas or whatever holidays. So I really wanted to uh, think about them. Honor. You wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor that. Um, Tip one. Neither of you can always be the chief. This one kind of smacked us in the face early in our marriage. Someone has to have the authority to make the final decision. If not, you'll either be stuck and do nothing, or if you force the situation, one or both of you may wind up feeling hurt, angry, or resentful. It's all about learning how to compromise. We both have different uh, passions. Mine is interior design and Pookie's, yep, she refers to her husband as Pookie throughout this whole entire thing, is all things car. So the basic agreement that works for us is that when it comes to cars, yard and exterior of our home, Pookie gets 60% of the vote and I get 40%. When it comes to making decisions about the interior of our house, so this can also be applied to Christmas decorations and what have you, I get 60% and Pookie gets 40%. Pookie and I agree that when it comes to making decisions about our home and cars, having this arrangement in place is one of the best things we've done as a couple. So tip one, good or bad advice, what aspects of it you think are good and bad and so on. Tip one, neither of you can always be the chief. Woods, what are you thinking? I 60-40 feels so close to 50-50. It doesn't <laughs> feel like it would be a clear dividing line. Mm, yeah. um, I think if the advice is pointing to the importance of compromise and playing to each other's strengths, mm. then that makes a lot of good sense in terms of um, what I'm also hearing her say is sort of talking about that ahead of time. They've made an arrangement that works for them, which is fabulous, right? They have an expectation of this is what I really want to prioritize and this is what they really want to prioritize. And we've agreed on that. And we not only agreed on it ahead of time, we've come back and debriefed about it after the fact and agree it's so super helpful. Debriefing is so good to do. <laughs> so I think uh, sort of thinking about is it flexible and adaptive over time is probably also important Mm. but um (laughs) they've set these expectations up front and that sounds valuable for decision making okay so we're edging more towards good advice valuable advice advice all right sesson thoughts good or bad advice yeah i think overall it it sounds like decent advice to me i'm not sure how you I mean, the formula, how that works, but I imagine they were just being um, 60-40, I think is one way to do it. But again, I'm thinking more about, well, first off, I think any time you are sharing the lead, um, it's helpful, but it's not realistic. I think in life, there are some situations, there are a lot of situations where one person takes the lead and the other sort of just trusts and follows, right, in that effort. Um, and negotiating what those areas are, I think is really important. But the aim, I don't think should always be like, we have to make every decision together and have equal say. That's exhausting. I mean, there's too many decisions to be made in life. So really prioritizing who makes what decision, I think is really helpful up front. And really, I think too, when deciding, okay, when the person who typically doesn't have a say over this does have a say, and maybe like more of a 50-50 say, it's when there's safety concerns around that particular thing but otherwise yeah i think you know sort of deferring to your other partner to take the lead in an area they're either passionate about or really effective at it makes sense it's efficient way of sort of um engaging in life as a couple right and getting things done so i think overall it's decent advice it can keep people really happy because i think we all have the things we want to lead and sort of take charge of in our relationships don't always want to have to ask our partner at a return for permission or consultation. Agreement. I think 80-20 sounds about right to me. 80-20, okay. For <laughs> Sesson, in terms of decorating the house, 80-20 is uh, what they have going on. Um, okay, so good advice overall. All right, we're going to skip ahead to tip three. Um, recognize that you are different genders. By nature, you'll approach things differently. Oh boy, this one took me a long time to realize. There was a four O's there. 
a long time to realize and then ultimately accept. Bottom line, a man's brain is wired differently than a woman's. It just is. We communicate and express ourselves differently. You should have been here when we were discussing the board and the banter treatment that we just added to our foyer. Talk about communication differences. I realize this is a generalization and there are various degrees of these differences, but overall, I believe this can have a huge impact on most of our decision making in all aspects of life as a couple. I know what a challenge this can be, so I wrote a post, you can go to the post, which you can read by clicking there. So good or bad advice, recognizing that you are different genders. By nature, you'll approach things differently. So that's bad advice. That's not supported by research. That reminds me very strongly of uh, that men are from Mars, women are from Venus mm -hmm. book that came out, I think, in the early 90s. And yeah, sometime in the late 1900s, it did come out. <laughs> the late 1900s. Uh, and then subsequently uh, wrecked relationships and somehow earned such a permanent spot in, I think, our cultural conceptualization of how people work for decades. Uh, it's not actually supported by research that this is a nature difference. This, uh, They may very well have different styles in communicating um, that may or may not have anything to do with gender, uh, mm -hmm. but um, there are cultural differences in ways that we acculturate men and women in terms of communicating and connecting. Uh, but the assumption that we need to sort of understand that we are naturally wired differently and therefore uh, we are destined to come into conflict, let alone when talking about decorating, is bad advice. Bad advice from Sarah Woods. Sesson? I don't know that I could say it any better. I think... Uh, so bad advice yes. with a exclamation point on it from Sesson. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you both. I think that uh, almost any two people you throw into a room together, regardless of their sex or gender, are going to have different communication styles. I have different communication styles from Woods. I have different communication styles from Sesson. And we both have been uh, through marriage and family therapy school together. So it just is what it is. People are different and you have to hang out and like figure out what the communication between you two look like. It just is what it is. All right, so moving to tip four, be patient. Don't try to rush an agreement. I have found that using inspiration photos from Pinterest often does a better job of getting my idea across than me trying to explain it. Surprisingly, Pookie can't read my mind and isn't able to see the end result that I have in my head. Give the other person time to mull your idea over and think about it. So Woods, good or bad advice, be patient. I feel like we are definitely not just talking about decorating. Uh, and also, I feel like there's two pieces of advice in there. Okay. One being patient. And uh, when you're trying to make a decision, it sounds like the recommendation is uh, both expect that your partner may need time to sort of think about what your perspective is and also make sure that they have that time. And that's really good advice. And also, if you're a partner who's um, trying to understand what your other half is saying to you, taking time to do that also I think conveys respect mm. and, and really sort of honors that you take their opinion and their thoughts really seriously. But there was a second piece of advice there. Well, maybe it was less a piece of the advice, but sort of about needing to find a way to convey your thoughts yes. and ideas. Because you can't read your mind. Yes, right. And that's, I think, also good advice. No one is capable of mind reading. And yet I think it's often an expectation that we have in families, couples, especially that if you love me so much, you should understand what I'm trying to say and understand what I'm thinking and know exactly how I feel. Uh, and so it sounds like this couple found a way to do that through um, Pinterest, Yeah, which I uh, have not used Pinterest for Christmas decorating. And also maybe, maybe that's you will. where I'm going astray yeah um <laughs> uh, Sesson what do you think good or bad advice I think uh Sarah's on a roll today I think she's oh my gosh what so comprehensive in her advice giving um I don't know that I have anything to add that's meaningful or different um than what she already said all right we'll let you go first next time so uh all right here we go tip number five but what if you just can't agree well first of all refer back to the previous tips that's what she said not me i oh. 
Uh, I recommend having discussions that have nothing to do with a specific project, but will lead to a general agreement between the two of you on how to handle disagreements when they happen. Trust me, unless you are an exception to the rule, you will need to know how to compromise about what to do inside your home. So, Sesson, good or bad advice? I think overall that's pretty good advice. I think the idea that I'm always a big proponent of having conversations that are outside of a conflict, a particular conflict. It's, it's, I think you are more emotionally regulated going into those conversations, a bit more prepared. And I always tell couples, um, you fight fair and you negotiate, I think, more reasonably when you're not in the heat of um, a conflict or really feeling connected to one idea or action taking place. So I like the idea of like, let's set parameters of what it looks like when we can't agree to something. How do we show up in the relationship? How do we still engage each other? And trying to hold to those, I mean, it's always great, but it's always something that one recognizes, even when you talk about it, it may still be difficult in practice. But I think just having those conversations and having them regularly, right, as opposed to we've talked about it once and now we have to know how to do this is important. So generally, we're going for good advice. Woods, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would say good advice. Also, I think um, talking about how to handle a disagreement when it comes up, uh, either ahead of time or sort of taking a break in the middle of a project you're working on together, is just really, again, sort of that idea of setting expectations of we're going to, as you might like to do, Patricia, we're going to plan ahead. Yeah. We're going to pre-prepare pre for if there's something that we disagree on, how do we want to approach it? And I imagine maybe that's how this couple got to the 60-40 agreement that they have settled on. But it makes a lot of sense that um, how do we want this to look when this inevitably happens that we disagree? How do we want to be with each other? How do we want to respect each other? And how do we want to talk about the fact that we are disagreeing? so that this can go well. That's good advice. Good advice. So overall, we like a lot of the advice from this post with the exception of the gender one. So as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.